calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Yes! And Madigan, this was your suggestion this week. What What? What What made you want to do this? Yeah. My boyfriend. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, he, because my boyfriend's a musician and he was uh, sending me a bunch of artists that I'd never heard of that are uh, very big, I guess, in the music feminist world. And he was like, you don't know about Margot Price and you don't know about this person. So he was sending me all these really interesting people. And I found that I never really, uh, I don't know a lot about music. I never really looked into a lot of these feminist musicians besides talking about like the riot girls and things Mm -hmm. like that so i thought it'd be kind of a good way for me basically to uh look further into i picked someone that i already kind of knew about before but didn't know enough about but a good way for me to kind of like learn more about um that world of feminism that i didn't really know a whole lot about Cool. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. That's why I did it. I'm interested to see who you have chosen. Once I say it, you're going to be like, yeah, okay. Uh, of course. <laughs> um, I almost picked Kathleen Hanna. I almost wanted, wanted to talk about her because, um, you know, I brought her up in our second wave feminism yep. or third wave feminism uh, episode. And she's mentioned briefly in mine. Again, a wonderful documentary that I brought up in that episode called The Punk Singer, all about Kathleen Hanna. I've seen Kathleen Hanna live. She's amazing. I told you that. Yeah, I, I totally saw, forgot. Sorry. I, you just gave me the most surprised look. Uh, I just yeah, got really excited. I'm right, sorry. Right there. Uh, I bought that album from the Julie Ruin. Oh, sick. Uh, a couple of years ago when I went and saw her perform live. That's awesome. With the Julie Ruin. God, we need to get speakers. We Max brought over like. I think we counted 150 some records, and that's like a small portion of his records. And we have multiple record players, but no speakers for them. Yeah, you need speakers. We're gonna go to Goodwill. You should or probably something. do that. Yeah, we're working on it, Keegan. We're um, broke. <laughs> but I was so I was going to talk about her. I really think, actually, though, that Kathleen Hanna and the Riot Girls need their own episode. Agreed. In general, but. Actually, who I'm going to talk about today probably could use their own episode as well, but I will try and cram as much in in 30 minutes or less. 
Let's jump in. So I am going to be talking today about Pussy Riot. Woo! That was on my list, too. I'm glad I didn't Kay. do it. Okay. So, um, Pussy Riot is a Russian activist punk band slash collective. Um, they are not like a traditional band of one group of members. They um, kind of cycle in and out. They're a very fluid group uh, where membership is open because they are... They're a collective. Well, and they're more of a protest movement yeah. than they are a band. They do have a band where they release music, um, and a lot of their protests and demonstrations are done in guerrilla-style um, concerts, basically. Do you remember, like, it was probably about, like, eight years ago or so when everybody was doing that for Halloween? Well, because about eight years ago or so um, is about whenever they were arrested. Oh, yeah, that's so, why. So they were in the news constantly. It became this kind of, like, huge feminist worldwide yeah. revolution, uh, the Pussy Riot movement. And you would recognize them as being these women who wore these um, balakavas. That's how it's pronounced, right? I think so. Yeah, which are those kind of, like, ski masks that you see burglars wearing, but brightly yeah. colored ones. And then they would always wear brightly colored little dresses and brightly colored stockings, even in very cold, harsh Russian winter climates. It's kind of like if Louise Belcher were to have, instead of a bunny hat, a balakava. Yes, yes, exactly. That's kind of the whole... Exactly. Uh, some of their songs include Kill the Sexist, yeah. Death to Prison, Freedom uh -huh. to Protest, and Mother of God, Drive Putin Away. Yes! So, <laughs> oh my God, I love it. They cite, um, you know, again, Bikini Kill and Kathleen Hanna and the Riot Girl movement as being a lot of inspiration for yeah. their uh, particular form of protest. And they began their collective or their band in September of 2011 as a protest against Vladimir Putin's announcement that he was going to run again for president yeah. in March of 2012. So yeah. as we know, Putin has been president for a very long time. Yeah. It is a dictatorship, uh, yeah. whether or not you know it's, they are willing to admit yeah, that that's what that is. They don't. It's really bizarre with the Russian people that I've known and also with watching interviews of like Russian figure skaters are often asked about Putin and it's almost this like robotic like he's like a grandfather figure like I remember a classmate telling me that in college and I was just like Ugh. well yeah because you can't really speak out against Putin no, or bad things happen can't. to you yeah uh, so many people have disappeared from that country and um, yeah so while they'll continue to say that he is a president he has been the president for a very long time and they knew that once he was re-elected, in quotes, elected again um, in March of uh, 2012 that he was going to be president for the next however many years, the next foreseeable future. Do they have terms like we do where it's like every four years they re-elect? I'm, I'm not sure. I think they're supposed to. <laughs> oh. um, but I think that... Because he's gone more than eight years. Well, yes, but I don't think... You know, even in this country, you could just keep running for a long time until we limited it to two terms. So that you right. could only so be president for a max have, of like, eight a limit years. Yet. I don't think so. Got it. Um, and the, I don't, I'm probably going to get this wrong. I don't understand Russian history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it just kind of like who would speak, who would go against him, who would speak out against him because like bad things would happen to you. Well, so he's that's just exactly that's exactly right. He yeah. holds most of the world's wealth. Yeah, like you know, they say that Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, but actually, 
Um, a lot of people think that Vladimir Putin is actually the richest person in the world. He just puts his wealth in people around him. Like, yeah. he lets people hold on to his wealth for him. And so you don't really want to go against somebody who is this rich and this powerful because if you were to be an opponent to Putin, you would just disappear. Disappear. <laughs> so he's ba- basically able to hold on to power for as long as he wants. Jesus Christ. Um, so people were so upset about this, not just the members of Pussy Riot, but, you know, average Russian citizens, that they called this period of time the Russian winter mm-hmm. whenever he was about to be reelected so Game of again. Thrones. Yes. Well, it's very cold there. Winter is coming. Winter. It's a permanent winter in Russia right now with yep. Putin being in charge. So um, they had an interview with Vice before a couple of members of Pussy Riot were arrested. And Vice asked them, so what inspired you guys to start Pussy Riot? And one member said, Pussy Riot came to action around the end of September 2011, right after Putin announced that he was planning to return as president and brutally rule Russia for at least 12 more years. Another member said, right, and at that point, we realized that this country needs a militant punk feminist street band that will rip through Moscow streets and squares, mobilize public energy against the evil crooks of the Putinist uh, junta, and enrich the Russian cultural and political opposition with themes that are important to us, gender, and LGBT rights, problems of masculine conformity, absence of a daring political message on the musical and art scenes, and the domination of males in all public discourse. Yeah, they they really do have high censorship when it comes to, like, the arts and things like that, like what can be said, Mm -hmm. what can be shown, and also a high high censorship about gender identity, right, LGBTQ community, things and like that. And we'll get into this like as we talk about yeah. them as a group and the things that happened in the the, you know, right. couple Sorry, of years. Right. No, that's there. okay. The couple of years after they kind of like developed, but something that is important to keep in mind is that while Westerners in particular were horrified at this and Western feminists really clung on to Pussy Riot and yeah, a lot of them went as them for Halloween or got tattoos or changed their profile pictures or whatever is that it's the understanding of feminism in Russia is just so completely different than Uh our understanding of dangerous. It's it's very dangerous and also they're just coming from a um a place of oppression in a way that I think a lot of Western women haven't experienced in the same way in our own lifetimes. And, um, again, like, there are also themes of, like, freedom of speech that are so deeply ingrained in us as Americans and other Western countries. That it's bizarre to hear it. Yeah, that just don't exist there. Like, they just don't exist there. Um, It's just not something that they're familiar with at all. Yeah. So Vice said, why Pussy Riot? And a member said, a female sex organ, which is supposed to be receiving and shapeless, suddenly starts a radical rebe- rebellion against the cultural order, which tie, uh, which tries to constantly define it and show its appropriate place. Sexists have certain ideas about how a woman should behave, and Putin, by the way, also has a couple thoughts on how Russians should live. Fighting against all that, that's Pussy Riot. And they chose two English words, right? Like yeah. Pussy Riot, they chose English words, they chose to display them on all their banners in English. And these aren't words that translate easily in in the Russian language yeah. at all. And so 
there was actually someone during this Vice interview, because, you know, the, he interviewed a, a good number of them, and there was another woman who was like, you shouldn't have told him, like, what Pussy Riot means, because yeah. when they're asked on the street by, when they're walking down the street with their banners that say Pussy Riot in English, um, and, like, guards will stop them or police will stop them and ask them, like, what their banner says, yeah. they never tell them what, what it actually they say? says. They just don't say anything? Um, they, they just don't tell them the truth about what it says or what it means. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they just don't tell them. So, um, it's not just, the collective isn't just the band itself. So there's the band itself, and then there's about, like, 15 other members who shoot their videos and edit their videos and get them put up. Because they do not take money for any of their performances. A lot of these videos can be found on YouTube, including the one that got them arrested. A lot of these performances can be found on YouTube, but they are anti-capitalists, so they don't accept money. They, They, you know rush in, kind of like flash mob in, perform, film it, and then get out, typically. Right. So, um, the group was organized in part due to anger over what members saw as government policies that discriminated against women, citing legislation that placed restrictions on legal abortions. According to, um... Tolo Konikova, who is one of, like, the big figureheads of Pussy Riot. She's one of the women who was arrested yeah. and has kind of become, like, the de facto face of, of Pussy right. Riot. Um, uh, Pussy Riot was part of a global anti-capitalist movement, which consists of anarchists, uh, Trotskyists, feminists, and autonomists. Pussy Riot saw themselves as feminist artists who were influenced by the Riot Girl movement and musical groups such as Bikini Kill, Oil Cockney Rejects, and writers, activists, and artists. Uh, The media tended to overlook the meaning behind Pussy Riot's feminism, the cultural context of which is vastly different from that of Western feminism. Yeah. It seems like, it seems very different because of the fact that what you said is that Western feminism, we have a different set of... um, I guess, rules, laws in America. And expectations. And expectations where it's a little bit different. Like you and I having this podcast isn't seen as being a threat or dangerous here because there's freedom of speech to protect us. Right. Where for them, they're on a different different realm of feminism because they don't have those things to protect them. Yeah, I mean, and you're also talking about a culture that came out of very oppressive communism, Soviet communism. Yeah. So that's where we we get all this, like, big brother kind of mentality where having this kind of free thought was seen as revolutionary and threatening. Yeah, and and being free-thinking in that country for a very long time, and I would assume still today, is a a dangerous thing because of the propaganda that they're trying to uphold. Right. So she said that Pussy Riot strove to make it clear that feminism in Russia was still an issue and that post-feminism had not been achieved. The Russian cultural context had to be acknowledged and its feminist notions had to be seen differently than those of Western feminism Mm -hmm. because in places such as the United States, feminism evolved to general women's issues, whereas in Russia, that was not the case. In Russia, feminism was seen as something that could just, quote, could destroy Russia. Um, And that was said by Kirill. I don't know if I'm saying that right. And he was the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. So you have the head of the Russian Orthodox Church saying that feminism could destroy Russia. Like, that's that's how they see it as that kind of massive, massive threat. So where they stand on LGBT issues, Pussy Riot members were outspoken in their support of LGBT rights. And in a 2012 interview, they confirmed that the group included at least one member of a sexual minority. This is also something to keep in mind. Homosexuality is illegal 
yeah. uh, in Russia. So that's also why they're being very vague yeah. about s- someone in our group is a sexual minority without kind of going yes, into details about exactly. that. Um, I know someone who's still in the States from Russia because she is like mm-hmm. here on asylum, basically, mm-hmm. for being gay. There were several members of uh, Pussy Riot who attended a banned 2011 gay pride rally in Moscow, and they were briefly detained after the rally was broken up by police. In a 2018 interview, Tolokonikova spoke about the importance of transgender rights to the band, explaining that she rejected gender essentialism and stated that we believe you don't actually have to have a vagina or clitoris to be a woman, and having a clitoris doesn't necessarily make you a woman. We're always saying that anybody can be in Pussy Riot, and we really mean it. So. Very intersectional. Yes, and that's kind of the setup to get us to what made Pussy Riot internationally famous. Yes. Which I think is kind of interesting because before, yes, a lot of people in Russia knew who Pussy Riot was, and they actually weren't very well liked in Russia uh, for obvious obvious reasons. Um, But before this, they weren't highly known in other parts of the world. Right. And so by doing what they did, they actually catapulted and put a national spotlight I mean, international spotlight on not only Pussy Riot, but also the conditions that people are living in in Russia. Yeah. So it backfired on them. Oh, yeah. Um, On February 21st, 2012, Pussy Riot staged a performance of their song Punk Prayer inside Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Savior. Some of the lyrics include, Virgin Mary, Mother of God, Banish Putin. Join our protest, Holy Virgin. (laughs) (laughs) Yes! The group's actions were condemned as sacrilegious by the Orthodox clergy and eventually stopped by church security officials. The women said their protest was directed at the Orthodox church leader's support of Putin during his election campaign. On March 3rd, 2012, two of the group's members, Nadia Tolokonikova, and um, so I'm going to shorten these because... I don't want to butcher these names. So a lot of their names, it was like, it was Nadia and Mara were the two that were arrested that day. Okay. And they were charged with hooliganism, (laughs) which, like, (laughs) is the most punk rock thing ever. I want to be arrested with hooliganism. Like, could you have chosen a more punk rock thing to get arrested with? It rhymes with my name, kind of. (laughs) Madigan the Hooligan? Yeah, that works. Yeah. Um, they initially denied being part of the group, and they staged a hunger strike while they were in jail. And that was on the 3rd. On the 16th of March, a third member, Yakaterina Samutsevich, was Sounds arrested. Good to me. Sure. And on June 12th, the indictment was published. Uh, they accused—and this is funny. This is super funny to me. They were accused of, quote— Blasphemous humiliation of the church. The prosecution called their outfits uh, defiantly bright and accused (laughs) them of jumping, lifting up legs, imitating dancing, and punching, which contributed to, quote, severe public disorder. (laughs) Which I think is... It's hilarious. I'm just picturing the dance moves, too, and it's so, like... They're reaching so far. They're like, what can we bring them down it, it, with? It's hilarious, but it's also, like, kind of terrifying. That It's, it's so terrifying. It's, it's so puritanical that you can yes. be like, what, is this a town in Footloose? Like, you're upset <laughs> that they're dancing? 
in a church. Oh, my uh, God. Sorry to be laughing, but sometimes it's the only way that I can, like, deal with something that's so absurd. And during their indictments and, like, when they were seen in um, court yeah. for, like, pre-trial things or whatever. Did they wear whatever, their They didn't. <laughs> but I guess the way that the courts are set up in Russia, they put them in a, essentially, like, a little cage thing. They, like, off to the side. They're, they don't sit down yeah, at tables in front. Yeah, up and away. And when they were doing it, you can see pictures of them and you can kind of see like they look like they're kind of smirking, like they're kind of amused, defiant. Yeah. And they were accused of maintaining a quote, Western and unfeminine attitude throughout the trial. How dare they? They were basically like, fuck you, fuck this. Yeah. And um, instead of being contrite or being, you know, feminine and like crying and yeah. being sorry. Or being, oh, I'm so sorry I did this. And I'm so sorry. Essentially, yeah. They wanted them to ask for forgiveness, essentially, and they weren't going to do that. So there was worldwide outcry, but especially in the West. Like, Mm -hmm. the West saw this, and they were like, this is insane. Like, you have these girls in jail, these women in jail for what we would deem to be free speech. Yeah. And you can say that this song was blasphemous. It was a little bit. I mean, but think about all the songs that have to do with, like, like I've been to plenty of live shows where musicians will mention Trump. Right. You know? I mean, and I, I truly... Rock, and I truly feel like it had less to do with the fact that it was blasphemous uh, towards the religion and more to do with the fact that it was bad-mouthing Putin. Totally. Uh, you know, and they were able to get them on this kind of religious hate crime charge. Right, they could disguise it as that. Right, because that is that is essentially what they got them on is, and they is were a hate in a church, crime. So they were like, okay, what can we what can we do here? Yeah, yeah. So the three detained members were declared political prisoners by the Union of Solidarity with Political Prisoners, and on March 25th, Amnesty International named them prisoners of conscience due to the severity of the response of the Russian authorities. The trial of the three women started in Moscow on July 30th, 2012. They were charged with premeditated hooliganism performed by an organized group of people motivated by religious hatred and hostility. So it's a religious hate crime, essentially, is what they're being charged with. Even though the messages that they're sending, like, they they mention the Virgin Mary, that they're in a church, I get it, but, like, the messages that they're sending aren't necessarily even anti-religious. I mean, I think they may have said some things. I think that they were... They could have, but... I think that they were saying some... They were kind of, like, playing on old hymns and doing things like that, which right. would be considered blasphemous in old-school kind of Christianity yeah, guess, circles. It, it would be, but that's not against... The blasphemy is not against the law. Yeah. You know, that's not a hate... Being blasphemous isn't a, a hate, hate crime. crime. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that that's crazy. Either that or you know, SNL would have been shut down years ago. Yeah. I, I mean <laughs> yeah, we would all be in trouble if that was the case. Mm-hmm. And so they faced a possible sentence of up to seven years in prison for this. Seven years in prison. It's insane. Uh the defendants pleaded not guilty, saying that they had not meant their protest to be offensive. Um Tola can Tola Konikova said, "We sang part of the ref- uh, of the refrain. Holy shit! I'm sorry if it offended an- if I offended anyone with this. It is an uh, idiomatic expression related to the previous verse about the fusion of Mos- of Moscow patriarchy and the government." I love it. She's like, guys, I had to refer back to this verse. Right? Listen, it's not a big deal. Sorry. Like it's it's music theory 101. <laughs> you refer had back to, go to the back. verse in the refrain. It's fine. Holy shit is our evaluation of the situation in the country. This opinion is not blasphemy. 
Their lawyers stated that the circumstances of the case had revived the Soviet-era tradition of a show trial. On August 15th, 20 protesters wearing balaclavas gathered in support of Pussy Riot at Christ the Savior Cathedral and held up placards reading, Blessed are the merciful. Cathedral guards quickly moved against the protesters, trying to detain them and taking off their balaclavas. All three were convicted by the judge and sentenced to two years in a penal colony on August 17th, 2012. But there's something so personal about going up to somebody and pulling an item of clothing or even a hat off of them that has such a, leaves such a bad taste in my mouth when I think about it in the image of these cathedral security guards coming. It is. And, And ripping these balaclavas off their heads is such a a jarring image in my head. Right. It's it's assault. Like you, and you know, they would probably argue that they felt threatened because these identities were being concealed and, you know, things like that. You're usually not supposed to wear. Then they can detain them. They can handcuff them, detain them, pull them aside, arrest them, whatever. Even in the United States, when we go to rallies or protests, they tell you that there are certain rules that you do need to abide by. Like, you know, if you have a sign, it can't be, the thing that you're holding it on can't be thicker than however many inches because then it could be a weapon yeah and one of those things even here in the united states is that you can't have your face covered i get it totally but you can there's something very very jarring about that image the imagery of actually physically I, pulling something off yeah of and i feel face. like there's other ways to detain them well of course Pull them aside. Yeah. you know what i mean it's, just, it's a very just like visceral image you know what i mean it's very aggressive yeah The judge stated that they had crudely undermined the social order with their protest, showing a, quote, complete lack of respect for believers. I'm sorry. You're not owed respect. No. You're not. That's like part of religion. It's kind of like having your own beliefs, even though other people may not agree with you. Like, I just remember that being a lot right. about, like, I mean, my and they weren't, Catholicism. They weren't being directly hateful to any particular believers, in which no. case I would say, like, that's inappropriate and wrong and you should never... D- I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that to Christians. I wouldn't do that to Muslims. I wouldn't do right. that to Jewish people. Um, but to say that singing a song in a church that you disagree with is being blatantly, like... It's just, yeah, that to me, that's ridiculous. Um, Mark Fagan, a lawyer for the trio, stated that they would appeal the verdict, but that, quote, under no circumstances will the girls ask for a pardon from Putin. They will not beg and humiliate themselves before such a bastard. Tola Konikova stated that, quote, our imprisonment serves as a clear and unambiguous sign that freedom is being taken away from the entire country. Yeah. Protests were held around the world after the sentence was announced. Amnesty International declared August 17th Pussy Riot Global Day for activists. People gathered in New York City where actress Chloe Sevigny... Uh, Karen Finley and others read statements by the convicted members of the band. In Bulgaria, people put masks similar to those worn by Pussy Riot on a Soviet sculpture, and about 100 people protested outside of the Russian consulate in Toronto. That's rad. So the world was in an uproar. Yeah. People everywhere were pissed. And this was probably around the time, like what you're saying, when you saw people like going yeah. at, at Halloween. It was probably around this time. Yeah. Because it was everywhere. I remember seeing it all over. It was right whenever I was starting to get into like Jezebel comment sections. And yeah. I was like seeing these articles come up constantly at this time. So many international artists, politicians, and musicians voiced support for the release of Pussy Riot or expressed concern about their fairness, uh, the fairness of the trial, including Madonna. Madonna performed in Moscow around this time, and she interrupted the middle of her own performance in Moscow 
and, you know, kind of defended Pussy Riot, took off her shirt, and she was, like, in a bra, and on her back she wrote Pussy Riot on it. Yeah, girl. And Bjork dedicated her song Declare Independence to their cause and invited them to join her on stage to sing with her. While acknowledging the support, members of Pussy Riot distanced themselves from Western artists and reiterated their position, mm-hmm. uh, their opposition to the capitalist model of yeah. art as commodity. One of them, identified as Orange, said, We're flattered, of course, that Madonna and Bjork have offered to perform with us, but the only performances we'll participate in are illegal ones. Yeah. We refuse to perform as part of the capitalist system at concerts where they sell tickets. Awesome. Um, Sticking with their guns. No, their integrity is insane. Yeah, because at this point, they really could have capitalized on their fame. They had international fame at this point. Uh, And they were like, nope, nothing. It's amazing. I love it. Uh, On December 19th, 2013, the state Duma, I don't know what that is, approved a general amnesty for various prisoners. Among those who qualified for amnesty were those in prison for nonviolent offenses and mothers of young children. So two of the women... Um, Nadja and Mara, I think, both had children. Oh. Like, um, Tola can... Nadja. Nadja. Just gonna call her Nadja. So, Nadja had a daughter at 18. So, um, her daughter was, I think, like, two or three whenever she was initially arrested. Yeah. And... that's great that they did that. Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) Tell me more. we'll, We'll get there. Okay, great. It was... So these two were released in December, on December 23rd, 2013. Following their release, Mara uh, went to meet with human rights activists, and she said, We didn't ask for any pardon. I would have sat here until the end of my sentence because I don't need mercy from Putin. Um, This says Maria, by the way, but I've heard it said Mara. So either way, it's M-A-R-I-A, which is Maria, but I've heard them call her Mara. Okay. Um. She told the New York Times that after her release, Nadia said, I think this is an attempt to improve the image of the current government a little before the Sochi Olympics, particularly for Western Europeans. But I don't consider this humane or merciful. This is a lie. Whether one likes it or not, going to the Olympics in Russia is an acceptance of the internal political situation in Russia, an acceptance of the course taken by a person who is interested in the Olympics above all else, Vladimir Putin. So she's calling people fucking out. Yeah, and the Russians, the Sochi Olympics were when, um, were Russians as a whole banned from the Olympics, or was it just in figure skating? Oh, I don't know. Because the latest Olympics, they couldn't compete under Russia. They were under something else. I can't remember what it was. Well, I mean, there's a whole documentary. doping. Yeah, that whole documentary, Icarus, which I have not watched. I want to watch it so bad, I still haven't watched it. But it's all, like, They cheated hard fucking core through that entire thing. Hardcore. The doping was insane. So, like, it's just funny how that all, like, coincides, you know? Yeah, I mean, and the things that they did, I, I can't believe. The human rights violations that were happening in Russia... This also coincided with them, you know, making uh, homosexuality illegal and all of the things that they were doing in Russia at the time. And we all fucking showed up anyway. Yeah. And so I love that she kind of, yeah, she pointed a finger at them and said, like, this is your kind of like turning, uh, turning the other cheek is accepting this behavior in right. Russia and basically saying, like, we don't care about the Russian people. And I love that both of them were like, and, you know, she has said since then, Nadia has said since then in a recent interview that I read that 
she has nightmares of going back to prison. It's not like they were having a, a good great time. time. Yeah. They weren't enjoying it. They were in like a big room with a hundred other people. Yeah. And it was it was terrible for them. But both of them are like, we would have sat in Russia or in Russia. We would have sat in prison for the rest of our yeah. time yeah. because we don't want to take these kind of like faux um this yeah. this faux sympathy from right. from anybody and these handouts that try and make Putin look like he's a decent human being when he's exactly. not. Exactly. I'm seeing that um I know that at least in figure skating they won the um the the group the country's title cuz now mm-hmm. there's like you compete for your country and then you compete individually and those titles were taken away from them. Oh wow. Yeah. Good. Um, so the two of them said that they would not be performing in shows, but we're starting to organize, we're starting an organization to work for better conditions for prison inmates, and that they still wanted Putin removed from government. Mm-hmm. Both said that Soviet uh, dissident Vladimir Bukovsky is their role model, a man uh, whom Tolokonikova said is a human rights champion undeterred by fear. In February 2014, a statement was made anonymously on behalf of Pussy Riot members, um, and they said that Nadia and Mara were no longer members. However, both of them did perform. They both said that they weren't going to perform again, and Pussy Riot was like, they're no longer members. But I think they were so pissed off when they got out about the Sochi Olympics that both of them performed as Pussy Riot during the Winter Olympics in Sochi. They could be anonymous. Yeah. That's the cool thing. Yeah. And um, group members were attacked with whips and pepper spray by (gasps) Cossacks uh, who were employed as security guards for the Olympics. On March 6th, 2014, uh, both Nadia and Mara were assaulted and sprayed with green paint by local youths in Nitsni. Oh, my gosh. Nitsni Novgorod. Nitsni Novgorod. I don't know if that's if I'm saying that right. It's a difficult language. It is. <laughs> it is. I tried to learn Russian once, and I learned very, very little before I was like, okay. Uh, I know some swear words. Yes. That's about it. There'd be, like, little, like, 11-year-old skaters falling and swearing in Russian. Yes. I can say I speak Russian, and I speak English, and I'm American in can Russian. You, let's do it. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, <gasps> is I speak English. is I don't speak Russian. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, uh, means I'm American. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, Keegan, I've known you for like almost what, nine years? Listen, my mom gave me an option whenever I was like, um, Whenever I was a little girl, she, my brother and I, she's like, you can get tapes to learn whatever language you want. And I chose Russian. And it was a bad choice. But, like... That's an awesome choice. Yeah. So I know, like... Uh, is it weird that I'm, like, a little turned on right I, It's now. kind of a sexy language, actually. I'm, it's kind of aggressive, but I'm yeah. kind of into it right yeah. now. Yeah. Nimnoga means a little. <gasps> I know a little bit. I'm gonna take that ring off your finger and put <laughs> my own ring on that finger and you're marrying me now. I would actually like to take it back up, even though I'll never use it, but it was a fun language yeah, to start trying to learn. that would a great language for me to learn growing up. I'm yeah. kind of jealous right now. That was an amazing little <laughs> Pimsler, tidbit. I didn't Russian. know about you. Pimsler. You can probably download it online now. I used old school tapes. Yeah, but... I feel like I should learn Spanish, but that's I, another... That's we all there. should learn Spanish. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, so... 
Um, yeah, horrible things are happening to them. They got whipped and pepper sprayed at the Olympics, and then they were also assaulted uh, by young people. This is a constant theme. Like, you can see pictures of them being interviewed. Yeah. And there are lots of, like, young people who support Putin who... There was one where they were because being that's interviewed. that's raised. And there was, like, a young person who supported Putin in the back with a raw chicken. He threw a raw chicken at them, which I'm just like, that... I mean, it's not funny, but it's also kind of like, like why chicken? Why? <laughs> but, like, why raw meat in general? It's, it's just weird. Kind of like, um, speaking as much to Western European and North American audience as to Russian audiences, in two, uh, 2016, Pussy Riot anticipated a Trump victory, and two weeks before the vote, released a song called Make America Great Again, <laughs> uh, depicting a dystopian world where a President Trump enforces his values through beatings, shaming, and branding by stormtroopers. In describing the video, Rolling Stone magazine noted that jaunty, carefree music contrasts the brutal events depicted on the screen. This is two weeks before the and election. I, and I gotta say, I love it when that happens in movies and in music, when they're discussing a very serious topic, or they're doing something very gruesome and serious. But then there's like a very joyful tune in the background like that. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite thing. So Pussy Riot continues to operate. And um, just last year, I started like looking into like what people are doing now. Nadja continues to be a conceptual artist. She travels to the United States. She I read an interview with her uh, that came out just a couple of months ago where she was talking about her daughter is now like six or seven. And she has, like, a very open... She has conversations with her daughter about politics. Her daughter knows who Obama is and Trump is and Putin is. and she, great. She has, you know, That's very open conversations. Yeah. And in September of last year, one of the group's members... I'm going to say this wrong. It's spelled P-Y-O-T-R, but I'm guessing that's Peter in Russian. No, I would say that's Peter. Uh... Uh, Verzilov, Peter Verzilov, was hospitalized, and he is Nadia's husband. He was also oh. a member of, of Pussy Riot. Right. He was hospitalized in September of last year, and he was held in the tox- uh, toxicology section of the intensive care unit in Moscow, wow. where it was suspected that he was poisoned. <gasps> so... That is Pussy Riot. Oh, dear. <laughs> they, you know, their music is very, very similar to Bikini Kill, to that Riot Girl punk kind of thing. They're paying homage, but in their right. own non-Western Well, way. I mean, and it's a great way for people who aren't musicians, who are doing it more of a, as a political act, to be able to do it, because you only really need to know, like, three chords. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of, like, scream singing. Yeah. Uh, but it's for a cause and purpose, and they've done such amazing work um, that I was so impressed with them whenever I was doing research on this. Yeah. It's rare to find people who believe in something so wholeheartedly and strongly that yeah. they can stick to their guns through this kind of treatment. Yeah. They were hospitalized several times for hunger strikes uh, while they were in prison. Um, it's just a fascinating... Their integrity yeah. and their passion is so inspiring. Yeah. So inspiring. It is. So this is a person that I've always known the name. I've always known the band. It's always been a buzz. But I didn't know a lot of the social impact that this person had and was a feminist. And this person is not a woman. This person is a man. Is it Kurt Cobain? It's Kurt Cobain. Of course it is. <laughs> so I, the reason I really want to do Kurt Cobain, there was a lot of women that I wanted to touch on, but there's something that I have a special place in my heart for men who take such a stand for feminism. Mm-hmm. Makes me feel really good. So I'm going to tell you guys about Kurt Cobain, even though you guys probably know a lot of this already. I'm going to tell you anyways, because I found this so 
heartwarming and fascinating. I'm not going to go into his whole life story. I'm not going to go heavily into his drug use. I'm not going to go heavily into his relationship with Courtney Love because that's not the point of this episode. But I will give you some background and I will give you some of that information because that's just part of his story. So his name is Kurt Donald Cobain. Donald. Donald, uh, named after his father. We're going to have to retire Donald after <sighs> no. after this. Sorry, Donald Duck. Um, he was born on February 20th, 1967 in Aberdeen, Washington, to a waitress named Wendy and an automotive mechanic named Donald. He had a very musical family. His uncle's name was Chuck Bradenberg, and he was in a band called the Beachcombers, and his aunt was named Marie Earl, who played guitar for a lot of different bands in the area. Kurt is described as a happy, creative, and sensitive child, which is probably how people would have described me as a child. Um, he showed really early artistic talent in drawing. He would draw, um, like, very kind of blasphemous cartoons of different people and political figures and musicians and things like that. Um, his aunt said that he started singing at the age of two and started playing piano at four, and he once wrote a song about the local park. There is a documentary is it the um montage of heck yes uh, I, I was you trying watch that? To, i was trying to watch it today and i couldn't find it on any platform it's on hbo we looked oh it, it, it's an hbo documentary that's what i, I watched it, it down. that's what i watched it on years ago maybe they did take it down i did watch that and you can see some of his um drawings and stuff in that yeah. and some of his like you know of course it becomes very very heartbreaking yeah and depressing but they do show you like a lot of his poems and um he you was know. a very, like, intelligent, artistic mm -hmm. child. Very much so. So when Kurt was nine, his parents divorced, and he took this really, really hard. His father remarried, and he actually really, really liked his stepmom. Um, but his mother began dating a very abusive man. Uh, Kurt would witness his mother being beaten, and one incident actually landed her in the hospital. But Wendy refused to press charges against the man and stayed with him. So that was really, really hard on him to be witnessing all of this abuse and not really see his mom doing anything about it. I know it's very difficult. You know, we did a whole domestic violence episode. Yes. I know it's incredibly difficult, and I don't blame women who have no. difficulty in in these situations, in domestic violence situations, but it's always hard for me whenever I'm like, but there's a kid, though. Yeah, but it's one of those things where I don't, I think that the, the person involved, the mother in this example, would be saying, like, but I can protect my child and, and, it's hard sometimes when you're in that situation to think about how it may be affecting the child. You, know, you should I think send you're so your kid to go live with her with his dad. Well, you know? that's kind of what happens. So yeah. this resulted in, well, first of all, before that happened, um, Kurt began really distrusting adults. And he actually began bullying a kid at school. And this kind of got to a point where his father took him to a therapist who said that he would benefit from a single-family home instead of bouncing back and forth between homes. And in 1979, Kurt's mom granted full custody to his dad, Donald. So now it's the right call. Now, well, he does kind of go back to his mom, but when he's a child, he goes to live with his father and his new stepmother, who it seems like he actually liked. But eventually, Kurt's teenage rebellion became too much for his father, <laughs> so he went to live with a born again Christian family friend named Jesse Reed, and he became a devout Christian for a short period of time. And he would later denounce his faith in Christianity, but he did have a song called Lithium, where he talks a little bit about his mm -hmm. um, Christian faith as a child. So in high school, Kurt befriended a gay student at school, and he began being really bullied for it, as was this other gay student. Um, his classmates assumed that he was gay as well. In an interview, Kurt said he liked being associated with a gay identity because he didn't like people, and when they thought he was gay, they left him alone. <laughs> his mom didn't want him to be around this new friend, Kurt says, because she was a homophobic. 
He would spray paint trucks with sayings like, God is gay and homosexual sex rules. In his personal journal, he wrote, I am not gay, but I wish I were just to piss off the homophobes. He also says in an interview, I started being really proud of the fact that I was gay, even though I wasn't. He would later describe himself as being gay in spirit and would probably be bisexual. He would also describe himself as being more of a feminine child. He liked to wear dresses and other articles of clothing that were only accepted for girls. He says at this time as a child, in a community that stresses macho male sexual stories as a highlight of all conversation, I was an underdeveloped, immature little dude that never got laid and was constantly razzed. Oh, poor kid. It bothered me. So I think that's really interesting is like, this would have been like the late 70s, early 80s, things like that, where he's speaking very much like this would be today, Mm -hmm. speaking about a childhood where he wasn't accepted in um, the way he liked to play, the way he liked to dress, the way that he was as being, you know, maybe more of a sensitive, um, quote unquote, feminine spirited child mm-hmm. being a little boy in this macho machismo world that wasn't very accepted. Right. And I find it so heartwarming that he befriended this gay student. And even though he was kind of masquerading as this gay person, he kind of had, he grew through that, this understanding and also this sense of of freedom in a way that he had a reason to be different. And for me, it almost comes across as less of um, masquerading and more of, like, someone, a, a child trying to figure out what his identity is. Yeah, you know what I mean? He, like He did kind of struggle with that a bit because he had this feminine side and he was friends with, with a gay student at his school where he was kind of like, am I gay? And kind of had this realization that, like, he may be bisexual, but he's always kind of well, been with and women. And this is like also kind of what happens when we try and shove children into these boxes. Yeah. Like, they don't need to have these kind of identity crises trying to figure out, like, if I'm if I'm having these thoughts or feelings or these friends or if I want to wear this, does that mean I'm gay? Like, yeah. it doesn't have to mean anything. anything. <laughs> you know? It be you like what you like. You just like what you like. You know? So he would also be quoted saying, I definitely feel closer to the feminine side of the human being than I do the male. Or the American idea of what a male is supposed to be. Just watch a beer commercial and you'll see what I mean. Yeah, accurate. Very accurate. His experiences with toxic masculinity and his culture was told in the song, Then a Son, which is a story about how it's easier to be born a boy than a girl. It's also exposed a double standard in raising boys and girls, how girls experience victim blaming and slut shaming where men do not experience the same scrutiny. So in that song, it's kind of like... Some people say it's about his sister, where his father wishes that his sister were born a boy, born a son. Um, but he's kind of talking about how he sees the differences between the ways that he was raised. He he acknowledges some of the uh, toxic messages that were being sent his way of how he was supposed to act. But he's also realizing the fact that the girls he's growing up with have it off much worse than he does. And how probably... Uh, the things he's struggling with are mirrored a lot in the ways right. of that how girls struggle. But I think that the idea of toxic masculinity uh, definitely wasn't a thing that was talked about no. growing up. And it sounds like he kind of stumbled upon that without having the words to say it. There's a lot of things that he talks about where they're yeah. the ideals of today, but he's speaking about them in the 80s right. and like 90s. Right, like even talking about how he doesn't um, relate to what we equate to be masculine yeah. and and relating that to a beer commercial. Yeah. What he's saying is, is toxic masculinity. He is. Yeah. 100%. It's very fascinating. 
So Kurt dropped out of high school two weeks before graduation since he didn't have enough credits. He was living with his mom at the time, and she told him that he had to get a job or get out. So he got out. Good old tough love. Good old tough love. Uh, He was homeless for a time. He would sleep on friends' couches. He would sneak into his mother's basement. And he would say that he often slept under a bridge at Wishkaw River, which inspired the song Something in the Way. He eventually found escape in the Northwest punk scene in Seattle. Kurt befriended and was heavily inspired by the female punk rock scene that was the Riot Girls. He dated Toby Vale for a short time and became friends with Kathleen Hanna. So when he dated Toby Vale... It was like they weren't really dating. Like, I think that they were kind of like together, but uh, Toby Vale saw like the conventional relationship as being very sexist. Mm-hmm. And, but I think, in a way, by that happening, that opened his eyes even more to like what conventional relationships are and like how they, they could be sexist at the time. Right. And I think he learned a lot from these women, and I think they really heavily influenced his music, too. Well, they they did. I mean, if you watch the punk singer, she talks about her relationship with Kurt. Um, they were very close friends, Kathy yeah. Hanna and, and Kurt Cobain. And she gave him Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah. Like, that was, that was Kathleen Hanna. Yeah. You know, they, you, she's got a picture where she graffitied, like, I think it says, Kurt smells like teen spirit, spirit or something <laughs> like that. That's cute. I need to see that, and I need to see... That one's a hard one to head. find. You have to, yeah. like, you have to buy it on Vudu, or you can rent it on Vudu, or you can buy it on, like, Amazon. But it's not for free anywhere. Right. Or it's for free on YouTube, but you have to watch it in, like, really weird... Like it's like Parts? no, it's like you know how they do it to like avoid copyright, where it's like small, like oh, or yeah, really yeah, yeah. like zoomed it's in. It's like a galaxy photo with like a tiny, tiny little right, picture. yeah. So, well, again, like you said, they spent a lot of time together talking about political and philosophical issues. So, I think it's like that was a really eye-opening period of time for him as well. Because yeah, it, was, it sounds like he already had the seeds of of feminism, kind of just like the he way found that his, he. Like, group a little you know he what found, I mean? yeah he found his people uh and they kind of you know we all need that little bit of guidance to give us the words for what we're feeling and yeah. that's what the riot they girls were for that him seed a little it's, bit, it seems know? like because of his childhood experiences he focused a lot of his activism toward the gay community in 1989 during the aids crisis the general consensus was that the only cause of aids was homosexual sex and there were a lot of quotes that i wrote about this and i think that we'll get into it more during coming out month um, the whole idea behind the AIDS crisis being strictly a gay issue and the fear that was ignited. We could have an entire that. episode about this crisis and Reagan's... Let's res- do it next month, Yeah, let's, let's do it next Doing month. Doing it. Uh, this crisis and Reagan's response to it because it will infuriate and sicken you. And like, that is the point yeah, of your angry neighborhood feminist. Yeah. If, if you want to be mad and prepare yourself for that episode that we do, go watch How to uh, How to Survive a Plague. Yeah. Because that, I to see that ruined too. me. It ruined me. Yeah. I think I heard uh, the True Kind of Obsessed podcast, I think, did an episode on that. I was crying alone. Like, I was just, like, alone watching it, just sobbing. It's, it's terrible. Anyway. I mean, it's great, but terrible. So during this time in 1989, Nirvana began its heavy anti- anti-homophobia rhetoric, and in August 22nd, 1992, so I was a little over a month old. Just had to think of it in that Sure, terms. sure. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, they played a benefit concert at Portland Meadows, which opposed Measure 9. So Measure 9 was an initiative to amend the state constitution, which would ban promotion of homosexuality. It would also mandate that schools 
quote, shall assist in setting standard for Oregon's youth that recognizes homosexuality, pedophilia, sadism, and masochism as abnormal, wrong, unnatural, and perverse. And the behaviors should be discouraged and avoided. The fact that homosexuality is in the same breath as pedophilia... Yep. Just... Mm, mm, yeah. Doesn't sit well with me. Shouldn't. <laughs> no. Not, it really doesn't. So before the show, the group said, Measure 9 goes against American traditions of mutual respect and freedom, and Nirvana wants to do their part to end bigotry and narrow-mindedness everywhere. At the time, they were kind of like at a war of words with Guns N' Roses, particularly Axl Rose, who Kurt thought was wrote like very homophobic and racist lyrics. I've read some of them. He did. He did. Yeah, I mean, Axl Rose is a trash person. He's a jerk. So, in response, Nirvana refused to tour with Guns N' Roses. It sounds like they had a tour like planned, and Kurt was like, nah, we're not doing this. They were then saying no to millions of potential dollars going right. on tour. Like, that tour was so successful, and they were like, we will not be a part of this. Um, and that and that made Axl Rose call Kurt a pussy, which is like, ooh. Also, you way to me. prove my fucking point. Exactly. Like, you just proved exactly, you proved my point. Oh, that hurts my feelings. Whatever. Kurt would also reject the bands Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin, saying that he liked the melodies, but it took him a long time to realize how sexist their music was. He said they just wrote about their dicks and having sex. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> so he just had a real, you know, and, and most, like, love songs are really toxic in a way, and we and we kind of move past it. I do this thing sometimes where if I'm singing a song that a man is singing, I'll, like, flip the pronouns sometimes mm -hmm. and hear what it would sound like from a female's perspective, and it sounds very bizarre. Yeah, I mean, this is actually pretty incredible. I mean, and I think it's part of why the grunge scene and the punk scene uh, came up, or the Riot Girl scene and the grunge scene kind of came up at the same time, even though they're different genres of music, is because at the time, in the 80s, all that hair metal is so misogynist. I can't even... I know a lot of people were watching that, like, Motley Crue show, uh, you know, TV yeah. show that was on Netflix, and I'm the like, movie. I can't watch it. Oh, it's a great movie, but it's fucked I, up. I won't watch any of that stuff or, like, any of the stuff about, like... It's hard for me to even watch Almost Famous, to be, to yeah. be honest, because that stuff comes out of, like... That whole groupie real culture, stuff. and it comes out of real stuff, yeah. and so it's actually pretty revolutionary for grunge to have done what it did, and to be realizing it at the time that it's happening, and not right. have it be in real that, time. Yeah, that you not something they realize for. later. Yeah, because a lot of these people now, if you were to ask them, like, was that fucked up? A lot of them would be like, oh yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah it was fucked up. So on the day of the Metro 9 concert, a Guns N' Roses fan jumped on stage and begged Kurt to make peace with Rose. Kurt responded, no, kid, you're really wrong. Those people are totally sexist jerks. And or, those people are total sexist jerks. And the reason we're playing this show is to fight homophobia in a really small way. Axl Rose is a fucking sexist and racist and homophobe, and you can't be on his side and our side. Way to go. Yeah, he's like potentially turning away... Fans. fans, yeah. So it, for him, you're like, alienating it, people. You're making people choose sides. Exactly, and like, it's not about making money or about appearing a certain way. It's just flat out. This is who I am. You know, again, it's a, it's integrity. Out. It is you know? so much integrity. On November third, nineteen ninety two, Measure Nine was defeated. Whether it be their devil may care attitude or a protest for gay rights, I don't know. if... I think it's Christ. Novoselic? I was going to look it up, and I totally Oh, yeah, forgot. I think it is. Yeah? Mm -hmm. The bassist and Dave Grohl and Kurt decided to French kiss each other on Saturday Night Live shortly <laughs> after, which I love. 
I love Dave Grohl. I too. love Dave Grohl. We uh, Max just watched a uh, Foo Fighters documentary. I only caught the end. Of he's it, a good. He's a good work. person. He's sweet. In an interview for his album Incesticide, he says, "If any of you in any way hate homosexuals, people of a different color, or women, please do us this. Please do this one favor for us. Leave us the fuck alone. Don't come to our shows and don't buy our records." Also in the '90s, Nirvana befriended drag star RuPaul. RuPaul recalls, these kids come from the same hippie, irreverent, bohemian mentality that I come from, so of course they're going to to gravitate toward what I'm doing, and a lot of people just don't get that. He would also talk about how when, like, Kurt and Courtney Love would see him, how they would, he would just see this, like, joyful response from them, and they would, he said, they think this is fucking cool. Yeah. Like, they just had this really, like, great attitude around Yeah. Him. RuPaul said that Cobain saw drag for what it really was at its core. Totally punk rock. <laughs> Kurt was often frustrated by the inequities between men and women. He had always felt a stronger connection with women, as I said. He once said, I just always felt girls were tre- weren't treated with respect, especially because women are totally oppressed. He spoke out a lot against about violence against women, particularly rape. In an interview in 1991 with NME, he reflected on a point of view about rape which suggested it was a we problem as opposed to a they problem. So he says, Rape is one of the most terrible crimes on earth, and it happens every few minutes. The problem with groups who deal with rape is that they educate women about how to defend themselves. What really needs to be done is teaching men not to rape. Amen. Go I to mean, the source and start there. Again, that's such a modern mentality to have that is not something that was ever really discussed until very, very recently. This was 1991! Yeah. It's great. So, by the way, I got a lot of my information from this article on a website called High Snobiety? High Snobiety? They had a lot of really great information. I also got some from Rolling Stone and Wikipedia. So, this article in High Snobiety made a really great point in saying that teaching women to defend themselves was really a sort of slut-shaming disguised as female empowerment. That's exactly right. Which made... So much sense to me, which I've always kind of thought but didn't have, like, the words for. Mm-hmm. Where it's like we're, we're so often teaching these girls different techniques to defend themselves, which is great. And you should. Like, these, we need to know how right. to, how we to don't, defend ourselves. We don't live in a perfect world. No. It's good to know how to defend yourself. Of course it is. Yeah. But framing it entirely as a... Um, this is going to happen to you. Yeah. So and you have no control over it. You have it. no control over it. Sorry. So put in all of these measures to stop it from happening. Because I don't ever. It was talked to it about in school. Yeah. You know, in my oh, health I class. Doing, I remember um, doing a self defense like demonstration. Right. It was. It was discussed. I do not remember. And maybe they think that it's something that doesn't need to be explicitly said, but I don't ever remember the men in my, or the boys in my class being lectured on appropriate behavior with yeah. women. Hey, don't rape people. That was, I mean, I, people in general, like, yeah, yeah. Don't rape other maybe men Maybe keep either. your fucking hands to yourself. Don't, don't rape. Maybe Guys. just don't touch people if they didn't ask you to. It's, Simple as that. Just don't do Case it. Case closed. He also talks about how he had this friend who worked in, like, a women's crisis center where they would deal with a lot of rape victims. And I guess uh, she was telling him how she was giving, like, a class to these women or, like, a therapy session or something. And right outside the window was, like, a football team. And how when she was telling Kurt this story, he just was thinking, like, no, they should be the ones in this room right Mm -hmm. now, not these girls. Like, they know what happened to them. And, like, yes, they need help, but, like, those boys should be in here learning that what their society is telling them is okay isn't okay. Right. You know? Very amazing, dude. 
His music often reflected these messages, particularly in songs like Polly and Rate Me. Polly is about a true story involving a 14-year-old girl at a concert who got a ride from a 49-year-old Gerald friend who reportedly raped and tortured her. This name sounds really familiar to me. I feel like I've heard about him before. Maybe. I don't know. I don't think I have. Because I remember hearing the name friend and being like, oh, that's such an ironic name. I know some friends. Well, yeah, but I'm I'm sure your friends are great. (laughs) This guy is an asshole. I was like, oh, this is a really ironic name for him. She escaped him by jumping out of his truck at a gas station. Friend was arrested and sentences and sentenced to 75 years for first degree kidnapping and rape charges. He was paroled after 20 years. And you after, don't say. And after two escapes. You know what? I'm fucking surprised that he was even in prison for 20 years. Yeah. You know what? He was probably only in prison for 20 years because he escaped twice. He escaped twice. So they kept like extending his sentence. Yeah. Because <laughs> usually for rapes, you're out. You're out in like two years. Yeah. So bassist Novoselic said of the song, the only chance she had of getting away was to come on to him and persuade him to untie her. That's what she did, and she got away. Can you imagine how much strength that took? And at 14... Yeah. I mean, I don't know if he's... He's referring to the song, so I don't know if he's necessarily referring specifically to this incident, or maybe it's just based on on that story in the song. But to be 14, to come on to someone... To get yourself out of a situation, to manipulate him and what he wants to get out of that situation is such a brave act that I would have never even thought of at age 14. You well, know what I, mean? I, I think, I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't have thought of it, but to enact it is something completely different because yeah. it would be so counter to all of your instincts, which would be repulsed. Yeah, but I really love the fact that this is a grown man who's able to put himself into that perspective and realize the strength that it took to go through with that. You know what yeah. I mean? So the song Rape Me was written as a battle cry from the point of view of a victim. It was meant to be so blunt that it couldn't be misinterpreted. The song is basically like, go ahead, rape me, beat me, do what you're going to do to me. I'm going to survive. You're not going to kill me. And Kurt says something like, I'm going to rape you, like Mm -hmm. figuratively, of course. But it's like, this is all going to come back to bite you in the ass in the end. You can do what you want to me, but I'm going to survive and I'm going to be okay. Uh, Tori Amos said of the song, the scariest thing to a rape victim are the words rape me. When I first heard it, I broke out in a cold sweat. But when you get over that, you realize he's turning it back on people. At a concert in Oakland, California on New Year's Eve, 1993, Kurt confronted a man in the crowd who was groping a woman in the front row. Have you seen this video? Yes. It's so great. Kurt stopped playing and threw his guitar on the ground, storming up to security and pointing at the door. He returned to the mic and said, cop and a feel, eh, buddy? Novoselic added, how's it feel, huh? And the band starts, like, laughing and, like, taunting him as he's leaving the venue and, like, really made this guy look like an asshole. Good. he should. Yes. Kurt had a lot of musical integrity and was aware of things like cultural appropriation before the rest of the world knew what that meant. When talking about rap music, he said to Billboard, I'm usually offended by people like Vanilla Ice and stuff like that. The white man ripped off the black man long enough. They should leave rap music to African Americans because they do it so well and it's so vital to them. He would also describe rap music as being the only vital form of music since punk rock. (laughs) So he was like, you know what? Let's just leave it to the people who know what they're talking about and like, let's stop stealing shit. Right. Well, because rap music is so culturally important to the black community. But also, I mean, he makes a good he makes a good point in music. um, So much popular music has been taken from black America since the beginning of time. Rock and roll. I mean, all Pretty much every form, I read an article once, and it's right, it's like pretty much every form of modern music, including pop music. Oh, yeah. Um, 
rock music is is black music. It is rock that, music that, is black that's music. That's what evolved into pop music, a jazz lot, in music, a lot of ways. blues music. Yeah, all of this stuff, all of it is is African American music owe it all. that was stolen from African Americans. Exactly, um, exactly. And the fact that he was able to not articulate only realize that. that but articulate it to mm-hmm. people and talk about it, I think, is really cool. So a little bit about his personal life. Kurt first met Courtney Love in 1990 at a nightclub. She made romantic advances, but Kurt wasn't sure he wanted to be in a relationship. They would soon bond over drug use, and by 1992, Courtney was pregnant with Francis Bean. At one point, the L.A. County Department of Children's Services took took the Cobains to court, stating that they were unfit parents. Uh, She had made, and she had done an interview with Vanity Fair where she mentioned something about still using heroin Mm -hmm. before she knew she was pregnant. Um, It took a really long time for her to try to articulate the fact that she stopped when she was pregnant. When she knew she was, when she knew she, she used until she knew yeah. she was pregnant. Yeah, and yeah. then I'm pretty sure she used after she had the baby. Oh, for, they both did. Yeah. They both did. I mean, this is such a, it's such a tragic example of what happens to good, talented people when they get addicted to drugs. Because yeah. you can watch the, I mean, in that montage of Heck, you can watch home videos. He's nodding off with the baby in his arms. Like they're fucked up. Like yeah, they're he had both a hard time incredibly fucked up. And it's so sad because it's such a good example of the fact that like drug use doesn't mean that you're a bad person. No. Like at all. It just means that you're a person struggling with something you can't shit. control. Yeah. Like, you... And and that drugs and alcohol are a way of coping. You know what I mean? It's a very unhealthy coping mechanism. Yeah, I read today that um, Francis Bean actually had some issues with drug abuse as well, which is not surprising surprising to me, you know? So, unfortunately, Kurt's legacy is laced with drug use. He took a lot of LSD at one point. He also took acid, drank heavily, and abused solvents, which I'm like, eeeh. Yikes. (laughs) His heroin use started around 1986 in Washington, and by 1990, it was a full-on addiction. He claimed that he used drugs as a way to self-medicate this, like, chronic stomach problem that he right. had but everyone's like it made it worse like well and it may have been that 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 was how he he started. rationalized it i mean and it also he could have started using drugs thinking that maybe it would numb him out but yeah. once you get addicted it's like the, the, you're not using it for anything other than to get high at exactly. that point but that may have been his way to like rationalize it to the sure. public as well he also suffered from chronic bronchitis which as a singer ugh, that sucks so on march 1st 1994 he was diagnosed again with bronchitis and laryngitis he was also <clears throat> super fucking depressed. Like, yeah. he was depressed throughout his entire life. It yeah. was an ongoing... He's, he suffered. He really suffered. He flew to Rome for treatment the next day with Courtney. The day after that, Courtney woke up to find Kurt had overdosed on a combination of champagne and rohypnol, which is used for severe insomnia. He was rushed to the hospital and was released five days later and returned to Seattle. There was a few other incidents that happened between this time and when he passed away. There was a time when he... Um, said he was going to commit suicide and locked himself in a room with a gun and the cops came and confiscated a bottle of pills and all and like several See to me guns. there are lots of people and sorry Sienna Sienna loves Kurt Cobain she's going to love that we're talking about him Oh good um but she's not going to love this There are a lot of people who don't think that Kurt Cobain killed himself that holds yeah. Courtney Love responsible for it to me, especially... Well, she holds herself responsible for it. But she, no, people think that she directly killed him. Oh, okay. Um, which I don't think is the case at all. No. Because if you look into his life, you watch that documentary, you watch, you read his diary entries, you watch um, everything that led up to his death. To me, there is no question that he killed himself. Well, and I think the thing is, is that there's a lot of shame that's 
that surrounds somebody who completes suicide. You know, I feel like that's something that people don't want to believe about their idols and people hold a very um, high standard to those people. And there's such a stigma around seeing the people who complete suicide as being weak or um, he was mentally ill and on right. very serious drugs. Well, and that's the thing is that the, the stigma around it is to look down upon those people when I don't believe that there's any shame in remembering somebody who tried as hard as he could and just couldn't do it anymore. And I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting to the fact that he committed suicide. I don't think that takes away from his legacy. Right. You know? Yeah, I agree. So on April 8th, Kurt's body was found in his home by his electrician. At first, he only saw a small amount of blood coming out of Kurt's ear and thought he could be sleeping until he saw the shotgun pointing at Kurt's chin. A note was found addressed to his childhood imaginary friend, Boda, expressing his love for creating music. A large amount of heroin and diazepam were found in his system. He had been lying there for three days, his date of death being April 5th, 1994. He was 27 years old. Yeah. And there's a 27. Long list of 20- I'm turning 27 this year. Yeah. Listen, I'm I not made, famous enough. I made fine. it to 29. You're going to be okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's Jimi Hendrix, there's Janis Joplin. Uh-huh. A lot of people have so passed my, away. So yeah, now that I'm almost 27, I'm like, it's so fuck. young. Oh. And they've done so much more than me. I'm like, what am I doing? It's so young. I yeah. mean, honestly. So, so, so young. So in 2005, a sign was put up in his hometown of Aberdeen, Washington, reading, Welcome to Aberdeen, Come As You Are, in tribute to Kurt. And before I finish, I forgot to write this in my notes, but the quote that made me um, really, really want to talk about him was this. Let me find it. He says, I am definitely a feminist. I'm fucking disgusted by the way women are still treated. It's 1993, and some people still think we're in the 1950s. We need to make more progress. There needs to be more female musicians, more female artists, more female writers. Everything is dominated by fucking males, and I'm sick of it. And that, to me, just kind of embodies everything that he was and believed in and spoke out against and has such artistic and morally and moral integrity that I admire so so much. Yeah, he was a true ally and I think it's important to point to people like this whenever people say that men can't control themselves because yeah. this is a man who had tremendous influence and power. He was so popular and famous. If he had wanted to abuse his situation he like could've. all of those hair bands in the 80s and all of those bands in the 70s did um, and claimed that, you know, of course they would. Why wouldn't you? You know, like, we were handed all of this uh, influence. Yeah, a lot of times your morals go out the window. But but he didn't. So if he didn't do it, you didn't have to do it either. And there's no real excuse for you except for that you wanted to take advantage of of the situation and you're kind of a piece of shit. Exactly. You know? Exactly. um, He, He held on to his morals for his entire life and didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. Yeah. And his music so directly affects um, his beliefs and the way that he wanted the world to be. And it's such a shame that somebody who was such so forward-thinking had to die so young and so far before a lot of this time because thinking about these people and what they could do today is so beautiful. But at the same time, he made such a lasting impact even to this day, only being around for 27 years and right. passing away so long ago. And so I think that instead of, you know, me being sad and wanting him to be around today to be a part of 
this movement now, I have to appreciate the fact that he really paved the way for a lot of people and yes. particularly a lot of men yes. to see he that influenced. it's okay to be mm-hmm. a feminist and to stand up for women and people of color and people of the LGBTQ community. That doesn't make you gay. That doesn't make you yeah. feminine. That doesn't make you He influenced a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have received that message. Uh-huh. So that's... Um, he made it cool. Really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really cool. And it is really sad. And again, I just want to drive home that, like, it is such a perfect example of the horrors of addiction, yeah. you know, and, and, and that we have a tendency to look down on people who are addicted as some kind of moral failing. Yeah, exactly. And it is a physical dependency yeah. that causes you to not be be yourself. Yeah, and, and, like, that, and that's why they call it a disease. That was something that I really had a hard time with growing up, is understanding that, you know, something like alcoholism could be a disease, because I was like, it's not like he's sick. You it know, seems it's like not a choice. Like, yeah, it right. really does seem like a choice, but there really is and, a chemical And listen, there, there is an initial choice that yeah, you make. There is, there is an initial choice, but at some point it does become a physical dependency, and also, um, addiction is genetic. As it's, well. Yeah. Like, your your propensity towards it is genetic. And it's genetic, and it's also um, something that I feel like a lot of people don't understand about the ways that people respond to mental illness is that it is a coping mechanism. Some people are able to, just on their own, discover very healthy coping mechanisms. We talk a lot about self-care Sunday, things like that, where they've found their own ways of coping with life in a healthy, effective way. But for me, and for a lot of other people, I didn't... I didn't have that way of thinking. I didn't go to healthy ways of coping. I went to very self-destructing ways of coping because that's what worked for me for a very long time and served its purpose. And I think that that was something that he experienced as well. Right. Agreed. Well, thank you for yeah. bringing that story. I think we had some pretty good ones this we week. We did. Kind of similar in a way again. They like, were. I mean, it's really, they were two people. Because I feel like in order to be a successful really successful feminist in the music industry, you do have to have, you have to go in with very set uh, beliefs and boundaries and integrity um, kind of set in place already in order to be successful at it. You have to stick to them. Because you have to stick to them. And like that's, it's so hard to do once you start getting a certain amount of fame and money. um, You know, it's very easy to kind of be like, well, yeah. Is it as important as I thought it was? Once we make it big, we're just going to be your angry basic bitches. Totally. Total sell, sellouts. We're just going to sell completely. out yeah. 100%. Sell out hard. Hard. We're going to be rolling in the money. <laughs> well, if you have stories that you would like to submit to us, please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also write to us on Instagram and on Facebook. We uh, do receive messages there as well. You can follow us on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. You can get us on Facebook. We have a business page and a group page. You can find us on Twitter at Yamf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. Uh, you can also leave us a review for our Reviews Day Tuesday on Apple Podcasts is where we most appreciate those reviews and ratings. Yes. But we will also take them on our Facebook page. We love those as well. Um, we also have two episodes where we need your participation. Need. Coming up in the next month. Uh, June is Gay Pride Month. So we are wanting to do another coming out episode. It was such a big success last year. We want all of your stories of when you came out uh, to your family. Good, bad, all of it. Um, It was such a moving 
uh, episode for us to do, and I know our listeners loved it as well last year. So if you're not familiar, go back, listen to that episode. Um, you know, so you can, you can, if you're on the fence about whether or not you want to submit a story, listen to that episode. Yeah, you'll really, you'll really love it. Um, our deadline for that is going to be June 18th for your stories for that. And what Keegan was also going to get to is the fatherhood episode. We are going to be putting that episode up on the day after Father's Day, but we need all of your stories in by June 11th. Uh, we don't have any fatherhood stories yet. We really, really need your help because if we don't get enough stories, we can't do the episode. And there, are people... I mean, you and I could probably dig up enough shit on our own dads to talk about for an hour. But for like, sure. Do you want that, listeners? I do you? I mean, they might. I don't know. Let us know. But I, we would love to also talk. I mean, I feel like also when you read stories about people's fathers and families, it relates back to your own experience in some way too. So either way, you'll learn plenty about us. But um, we really, really would love your stories. So please email them, direct message them, anything like that. Please also listen to us on Radio Public. We really appreciate our listeners who do that. It's a free way for you to listen, and it helps us out a little bit along the way. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you guys really enjoyed it as much as we did. With all that being said, we encourage you to to rage on. on. Bye. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.